We're beginning a new series as we step into chapter 12 this morning, um, one that will carry us into mid-spring, um, and we've titled it simply The Spirit-Filled Church, but in actuality, we're going to cover quite a lot of ground as we move through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and we'll see how... Um, We'll see how Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that God has made available gifts to his church, um, how those gifts are supposed to work. He'll explain the motive of those gifts and the purpose of those gifts. Of course, right in the middle of this big passage, we have 1 Corinthians 13, which is sometimes known as the love chapter. Um, and then as he spills into 14, he'll talk about how those gifts are to be used in the regular gathering of believers. Um, and it's, uh, this is an area of scripture that I'm always wanting to spend more time in. Um, there are four areas in the New Testament that hone in and focus on spiritual gifts. There's 1 Corinthians 12, where we'll be this morning. There's Romans 12, there's 1 Peter 4, and there's Ephesians 4. And every time I get to them, I'm excited to review them again because we discover something really important. Um, which is that the Christian life, by definition, is a supernatural life. Or to put it in another way, that the Christian life, by definition, is a life of spirituality. However, in almost every occasion where we find the gifts being referenced, they're referenced in the context of misunderstanding. And I think that's very appropriate for us, because even when we hear the word spirituality, that can really be kind of a junk drawer term something that's not necessarily meaningful. And so what Paul does here is corrective in nature. He's trying to explain the wrong understanding of, of the spiritual gifts. And although we may not share the same misunderstandings of the church in Corinth, um, we can always use a refresher. And so First uh, Corinthians 12, we're going to read through the first 11 verses, and then we'll pray and we'll um, inspect it a little bit deeper. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one is speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there's a variety of service, but the same Lord. There's a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another an utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by the one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Let's pray. Father, my prayer for us this morning is simple. Uh, Paul says that he doesn't want, want the church in Corinth to be ignorant. And we stand behind that same desire, and we don't want to be ignorant as your church. We want to be familiar with the resources you've given us to live the Christian life and to fulfill the mission of the church. And so I pray, God, that you would um, 
reshape and reform this morning and in the weeks to come our understanding of what your spirit desires to do in our church, that we would avail ourselves and be open to these things um, and that you would accomplish them to the building up of the body of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's helpful, even here, to remember that Paul's letter is a response letter, that he's received a letter, probably multiple letters from the church in Corinth, and he's responding to that letter. All the way back, starting in chapter 7, he says, now concerning the things you wrote to me about, and he takes them one by one, and it's kind of a random list of items And so he talks about communion, he talks about head covering, he talks about food offered to idols, and here he takes three entire chapters, more than almost the ground we've covered in in the rest of the questions collectively, to deal with spiritual gifts. But notice how it's phrased here in verse 1, it says, now concerning spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts there is actually not the usual word translated spiritual gifts. Um, The word that's usually translated spiritual gifts is the Greek word charismata. It's where we get um, the word charismatic. Uh, It's where we get the word charisma. Um, But this is actually a word that just says pneumakotoi, okay? The pneumakotoi is literally, if you just translate it for what it actually says, is now concerning the spirituals, okay? It's very broad. The Greek word in the New Testament for the Holy Spirit is pneuma. And so the pneumakotoi are the spirituals. And some argue that what he's saying here are spiritual things. Now concerning spiritual things or concerning spiritual matters. Others argue that what he's saying here is now concerning the spirituals as in the spiritual ones, the spiritual people. And it's a little bit hard to tell which one he's using because it's not a word that Paul uses very often. If you look through the rest of the New Testament, he doesn't take this particular word and use it in this way. We just find it used as an introduction here and a couple more times in these chapters. So most likely, he's taking a term that's near and dear to the Corinthians. Most likely, he's taking their word categorically and responding to it. And it's intriguing that even when he responds to it, he kind of sets the term aside almost instantly and uses his own vocabulary. But what is he actually talking about here? That brings us to what's probably going on in Corinth. We know from earlier on in the letter that the church in Corinth was divided. And and not evenly divided, not just divided in a single way. They were divided into multiple categories. They were just a divisive church. And so they divided behind which leaders they felt had the most influence in their lives. They divided behind uh, the strong in conscience and the weak in conscience. And most likely what they were doing with the spiritual gifts is they were dividing into the spirituals and the non-spirituals. You see, as we go on in these chapters, we'll discover uh, one gift in particular that Paul continues to flag and emphatically address um, more than all the others, and that's the gift of speaking in tongues which we'll come to later this morning, but, but just as a placeholder, the idea here is that you're speaking in a language that you did not learn, okay? Um, and you see this gift utilized throughout the New Testament, but in the Corinthian church, it had become a badge of unique value in the church. It had become a badge or a demonstration of an upper-class Christian citizenship, 
There may be other gifts on this list as well that were falling into that category. Many of the gifts that Paul lists in this passage here are profound, what we would normally label as supernatural. However, we'll notice as well that as he makes these lists of gifts, he also includes things that are not supernatural enough to notice unless you're looking for it, like the gift of helps or the gift of administration or the gift of service. And so here, what he's trying to do is address this uh, understanding of spirituality that is only available to the few. He's trying to address an understanding of the gifts of the Spirit and God working through people in the church that creates a division between the real, valuable Christians and everyone else. And so whether here he's saying now concerning spiritual matters or now concerning the spiritual ones, the spiritual people, is a little bit hard to tell. But more importantly, notice what he says in the second half of verse 1. I do not want you to be uninformed. I do not want you to be ignorant. Now, that's a helpful phrase for us because it helps us to recognize this morning that there are things to know. That God has created the church in such a way that we would be impoverished if we don't understand what's available to us. If we don't understand what's going on. Sometimes, if you read through the New Testament and you encounter all of these things, from the profound like healings and miracles, um, to the incomprehensible like speaking in tongues, uh, sometimes there's... There's just a natural sense of distance in these things. I I don't have any experience there. That seems a little bit weird. Uh, There can be a lot of confusion. If you've grown up and experienced church, you know that this this issue of spiritual gifts can be one that's tremendously divisive. Uh, And if you've ever walked into a church uh, that you weren't familiar with, how these things were dealt with and manifested can feel like an entirely different culture. But Paul says up front that his desire is that the Corinthian church understand, that they would know. And we should have the same desire. Now, he's taking his time in his argument here. This morning, Paul really only has one point. And maybe as I read through the passage, you caught what it was. Although he's going to talk about a diversity of spiritual gifts, he really wants to talk about a unity in those gifts. And so over and over, it's by the Spirit, by the self-same Spirit, by the one Spirit. There's many, but they all come from, and he repeats it over and over uh, again. And, um, and so he's really kind of running up to a fuller argument that we're not going to get the whole way through this morning. Um, we're just going to focus in on this main point that he's making. I want you to look with me, though, at verses 2 and 3. You would hope you would hope that the beginning of this passage would be the easiest to understand and then would get to the hard stuff. That's not necessarily the case. Notice what he says here in verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason why these, uh, these words are difficult for us is because we have, to, uh, we have to understand why Paul feels the need to say this. Okay? When he says specifically, no one ever says Jesus is accursed by the Spirit of God, we have to go, why are we talking about this? Right? 
are we to imagine that somebody stood up in the middle of a church service and said, I have a prophecy, a word from the Spirit, and then shouted, cursed be Jesus? Is, is that what we have to imagine here? Um, is it possible that some people had concerns about the gift of tongues because it was in a foreign language and were afraid that what was actually happening may be blasphemous? Uh, if you go that route, either of those directions, then what this looks like is basically a way to vet how to know when a spiritual experience is valid and when it's invalid. But let's just recognize the obvious this morning. That um, you're setting the bar pretty low if the evidence that it's not of God is, is blasphemy, right? If the evidence that it's not of God is offending and cursing uh, the very Lord and Savior who bought us. It may be, and I think this is most likely, that what he's talking about here is actually recognizing another division in the church, the division between Jew and Gentile. This is another thing you can see throughout the Corinthian letter, and so what he does here is he puts them both in their place. And so he says in verse 2, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. The recognition here is that most of the pagan world then had spiritual experiences. Most of the Roman Empire valued uh, spirituality, and most other forms of worship most other cults and religions, most of the other temples had spiritual aspects. In fact, he mentions here the gifts of healing, and we know that the temple of Asclepos was in, uh, in Corinth, and when we dug it up, when we excavated it uh, in the last century, we found it filled with um, sculptures of body parts. And Asclepos was a temple for healing. And so people would come, and in some way they would uh, you know, maybe like in a pottery class, shape the, uh, the offending part of their body and pray for healing, okay? And so these things existed, and what he's recognizing here is um, that they may have had spiritual experiences, but where did they lead them? To worshiping what he calls mute idols here. You see, this is one of the great criticisms of the Old Testament um, of idolatry in general, the psalmist puts it this way. He says, you worship a God who has a mouth but cannot speak, who has ears but cannot hear, who has eyes but can't see, who you have to pick up and carry and can never carry you. And the idea you need to understand is not that, they, uh, not that idolatry is about a little statue. Okay? Neither any of the religions around the Jews would have believed that, nor did the Jews believe that the other nations believed that. Those idols were representative. Okay, what the psalmist and what Isaiah tries to bring about that's so ironic is that those statues perfectly represent their gods because their gods aren't real. And so just as that God has a mouth but can't speak, neither does this God speak because he's not there. Okay, and so here the illusion that Paul is making is that they had these spiritual experiences, but they were dead ends. Okay, that you can't just justify spirituality by its presence. That experience is not the metric here. And that if they just look back on their own past life, they can point to things of high spiritual, you know, on the Richter scale, highly spiritual, but were actually dead ends. It may be that what he does here is then go, now for all of you of Jewish background who feel like you never fell in that trap, right? It may be that he goes, I know not all of you were pagans, but there were also the Jews, who at this point are probably feeling pretty good about themselves. This approach is a common one in Paul. 
He does the same thing in the letter of Romans, and so he paints in Romans chapter 1 the world as it is with uh, Gentiles who have turned from worshiping the creator to worshiping creation. He lays it all out, and then he says, now, you Jews, are you any better? You look at them, and you condemn them for not keeping the law, but do you keep the law yourself? Right? And so he traps them in their self-righteousness. It may be he's doing the same thing here. In fact, Paul's probably speaking from personal experience. What was Paul before he became a Christian? Not only was he a Jew, but he was persecuting the church. This phrase, cursed be Jesus, may actually be one that Paul himself has spoken. In fact, one of the big stumbling blocks for the Jews, one that Paul references in this letter, early in uh, the letter, is that Jesus died on a cross. The idea that the Messiah would come and die and die on a cross is unbelievable to the Jews. It's, it's terribly offensive to the Jews. The Old Testament even says, cursed be anyone who hangs upon a tree. And I'm not just gathering some sort of random reference to make a point. Paul picks up that very quotation in the book of Galatians and applies it to Jesus himself. He says, yes, that's exactly right. Jesus was cursed on our behalf. He bore the burden of our disobedience. He took our unrighteousness and bore the guilt and the consequence and the shame and the curse of that. Okay? But for the Jews, this was a hurdle. It was a stumbling block. And so what is he recognizing here? He's recognizing that before Christ and after Christ, be it Jew or Gentile, whatever your background is, there is this reality here. At the very least, what he's doing here is painting the negative so that he can apply the positive. Okay, and that's what he says in the next verse. Uh, He says, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, I'd, I'd challenge you to try it. And of course, you're going to succeed. It doesn't seem that hard to say Jesus is Lord. That's not the point. Okay, like I said, this is not a metric so that you can say whatever you want as long as you start with Jesus is Lord and then you can you know, control people's lives through your own interpretation of prophecy. That's not what's going on here. What you have to remember is that this phrase, Jesus is Lord, is inherently by nature confessional. That's why Paul says in, book of, in the book of Romans chapter 10, uh, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Okay? Jesus' Lord was the short-term explanation of being a Christian. In fact, it was a tremendously costly one. Because any time you said in the Roman world that Jesus is Lord, you implied directly that Caesar is not. And many Christians in the first century lost their life maintaining this particular confession. Okay? And so what is he saying here? He's not saying that this confession is the stamp of spirituality. He's saying that becoming a Christian is by definition spiritual. What he's saying here is that spirituality begins with the confession itself. That if you are a Christian, then you are one of the spirituals. Okay? That's what he's saying here. Listen to it again in that way. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Reverse engineer the logic here. If you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, if you confess him as Lord, if you are a Christian, then you have the Holy Spirit. Okay? That is the danger that the Corinthian church was in, was making a graded scale of spirituality where the Spirit was something that was available to the few. And Paul, 
Paul says, no, you've misunderstood the Christian life entirely. Now, all of the things that we're talking about this morning might be interesting to you if you're joining us and you're not a Christian this morning, but here's a, here's a point that I'd like to elaborate for your sake, okay? You cannot just try and live the Christian life. That's, that's not the way that you become a Christian. You can't just go, well, what Christianity is is a way of living, and so I'm just going to step in and do it. The recognition that the New Testament makes is, as we talked about the law this morning, we can't keep it. And that's, that's not just you as a non-Christian, we're some sort of upper-crust human beings who are capable of doing what you cannot. The Bible says that all of us fall short of the glory of God. What I'm saying here is that obeying God because of what happened in Adam and Eve, because of what's wrong with humanity, obeying God is only possible supernaturally. Jesus promised before he died that after he died for our sins, after he made a way for forgiveness to be available, after he was resurrected and ascended to the Father and stood at his right hand, that he would pour out his spirit. It's part of the um, the whole kit and caboodle of what Jesus did. It's part of the spiritual package of what Jesus was doing. He didn't merely offer to deal with our debt to God or to absolve our guilt, but to give us life. Okay? And so the gospel, by definition, is not come and live a life Christ shows you, but come and partake of the life in Christ. And what that means every time we get to the end of the sentence is through the Holy Spirit. God has sent himself into our lives to empower us to truly live. And so the observation that Paul is making here in terms of spiritual gifts and spirituality in the church is once you've crossed that threshold, even that, even that, your belief itself requires the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. Go back and read 1 Corinthians 2. The gospel itself doesn't make sense to the man in all natural. It's the spirit who reveals the truth of these things. It's the spirit who impresses these things upon our heart. And so conversion involves uh, this supernatural act. And so he sets this line, and then he goes, so why does it look differently? If we all have the self-same spirit, and you can't pour the Holy Spirit into a glass and measure and say, well, I have two gallons and you only have a quart. Right? If that's not what's going on, then why do we see these different manifestations? And I want you to notice that he doesn't deny it. He says right here that even the supernatural life of the Christian is going to be in variety and not in uniformity. When he talks here about the one and the many, he maintains both of those at the same time. So notice what he says in verse 4. There's a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There's a variety of service, but the same Lord, and there's a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And so what was happening in the church in Corinth is a, is a normal human thing. When there's a whole bunch of things, we organize them. We can't help it, right? We just naturally desire for things to be categorized to the degree that we think of the animal kingdom in a seven-tier structure, right? Kingdom phylum class, order, family, genus, species. And honestly, if you look hard enough, you'll find people who do it with chairs. You'll find people who do it uh, with house design. And so we, we all have houses, but some of us have a rambler, right? Uh, there's all of these ways of organizing 
uh, our life around us. And the problem is the Corinthian church was seeing all of these different things in the life and probably not seeing some of them and coming to wrong conclusions about them. That somehow the people who were able to do these things, the people who were experiencing God in such a profound way were some way better, were some way more equipped. My son is colorblind, and it is an unending stream of fun for me and my family. Okay? His, his younger brother is younger, uh, and the way that he goes about education and learning and thinking is very different than his older brother. The first test that, my, that Ransom, my youngest, got right before his older brother was a colorblindness test, and he was so excited. Okay? Um, constantly, constantly we're, we're talking about it, um, and some of us feel this way about the spiritual aspects of Christianity, that I just don't have the right rods and cones, spiritually speaking. In fact, recognize culturally, this is generally how we talk about spirituality in, in the concept of a sixth sense, right? That there's this aspect that opens you up to be in tune with the unseen realm, and only some people have it. What happens in the church is we do the same thing, and so we feel like colorblind Christians. We feel like there's this aspect of life that isn't available to me, and maybe consciously you vet the reason, and you think, what is it? Am I holding back on God, and so he won't you know, demonstrate himself to me in these ways? Uh, is, is there something that I can develop, right? Do I need to go to some sort of spiritual gym and work up these muscles so that this can be the case? Um, have I not been praying enough? And Paul just starts and he says, look, it began with a gift. It began with the giving of the Spirit. And when he says, I don't want you to be ignorant here, one of the implications is ignorant of what you have, not how to get what you don't have. Paul says something to the Galatian church that is similar. He says, having begun in the spirit, are you now perfected in the flesh? If the Christian life by definition is a work of God in its origin, then are you now going to live it out, building upon that in your own ability apart from a work of God? Now the spirit's role in a Christian's life is a lot more than manifestations, than spiritual gifts, than what we're talking about here. Paul says, once again, in the book of Galatians, that, the, that there's a war going on inside us between the flesh and the spirit, and that the character of God comes through our lives solely through the power of the spirit. It's the fruit of the spirit that are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-respect, etc. Sorry, self-control, not self-respect. Nothing wrong with self-respect. Um, <laughs> But I want you to notice the emphasis that he's making here. You can see it in the structure. Every time he says there's a variety of blank, but from the same blank. He says it three times. Again, in verse 4, there's a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There's a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there's a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. The first thing I want you to notice here is that he speaks of the gifts not as something you have, especially. That's not where the emphasis is. Not as a badge that you wear or a demonstration, not of something you do, but he roots it in the source. And so when he says a variety of gifts, he points to the giver, right? He doesn't say here abilities, and that's an important concept to distinguish between in modern English. Because a lot of times when we talk about people being gifted, 
we're talking about innate ability. What he's talking about here is not innate at all. It's supernatural. It's God-given. It comes directly in correspondence with you becoming a Christian. It's a gift in the true sense of something that was given to you. Okay? Uh, so he says there's a variety of gifts but the same spirit and then there's a variety of service. Where does service put the, ask, uh, put the orientation? Not about you being the all-powerful center, you know, the source, but merely a servant. That you're serving a master, right? Variety of servants but the same Lord, okay? And so the emphasis, once again, is on who you're serving. And then he says, lastly, that there is a variety of activities, but, uh, sorry, I jumped ahead there. Um, there are a variety of service, the same Lord, verse 6, and there are a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in every one. Activity sounds neutral until we get to that word empowers. It's empowered activity. Do you see that? And so once again, it points us not to the happening, but to the power behind the happening, not to the spinning of, uh, you know, the blades in your engines, but the internal combustion that makes that happen. So every time he reminds us that the way we should think about spiritual gifts is that they're spiritual, right? That's what he's trying to say, but there's also something here that we have to understand. There is a unity and there's a diversity. Why are we comfortable with that idea? Right here he does something super fascinating. By referring to the Spirit, the Lord, and God, he sets up this understanding in a Trinitarian sense. He uses these three terms pointing to the Holy Spirit, to Jesus is Lord, remember we just read that, the Son, and then God the Father. He refers to it in these three different ways to remind us that unity and diversity stems from the very character of God. That for us as Christians, we believe in a single God in three persons. And I know that the Trinity is a hard concept to understand because we have no um, corresponding equivalent in human life. But the best way to think of it, the best way logically to think of it, is that the Spirit is God, but the Spirit is not Jesus, and the Spirit is not the Father. That the Father is God, but the Father is not Jesus, and the Father is not the Spirit. And that Jesus is God, but Jesus is not the Spirit, and Jesus is. And so what you have here is unity, one God, diversity in three persons, Father, Son, and spirit. And he says that the way that God works in our life, surprise, surprise, is the way that God is. And so we should anticipate then both a unity and diversity. We should expect a variety. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 4. He refers to the gifts that we experience in the life of us, uh, of the church, as the manifold grace of God. Right? The word manifold means in variety means diversity. And so here then is the ex expectation that's laid out. Let me just draw some simple observations before we get into the gifts themselves. In fact, we can do it in summary by looking um, at verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. I want you to notice once again the word there, manifestation, points elsewhere, right? This is how the Spirit is made manifest in the church. Not something we do, not something we bring to the table. We're merely, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, earthen vessels, clay pots, and there's this treasure on display on the inside. Okay? 
But what else do we see in this? It says not only to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit, but to each is given. What Paul wants to make known to the church uh, of Corinth and what God wants to make known to us this morning is if you have stood under that confession that Jesus is Lord, if you've become a Christian, then you have been gifted. To each has been given. So it's not even just that God gives enough gifts to any given church and then there's some who are merely recipients and some who are merely givers. No, to each he has given spiritual gifts. You have the self-same spirit and God desires to work through you. And then notice how he summarizes this or uh, finishes this. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit. Why? For common good. What are gifts for? Okay. He's talked mostly about where do gifts come from, from God. Now what are gifts for? For the common good. Okay. And so the idea of using any of these gifts to make it all about you, the idea of using any of these gifts to demonstrate your glory is to misunderstand the entire purpose of why God is doing this. Okay. God didn't give the Holy Spirit to create fame, at least not fame for us. It's manifestation, right? It points to who God is. Um, and this is a, a, a really important concept because as we look over the gifts, some of them have direct correspondence with the rest of human life. When you read the list in Romans chapter 12, we get the gift of leadership. And leaders can, can build their own fame and success. Um, we find many gifts that are verbal in nature, like the gift of teaching. But what are these gifts for? for the sake of others. Okay. Even the gift of tongues, he'll point out, is only to be used publicly in a way that benefits the rest of the church, in other words, with interpretation, because that's what the gifts are for. Okay. So to summarize what we've just read, if you're a Christian this morning, you have been gifted. That gift is operated through the power of the Spirit, and it's for the church. What he does next is he gives us a list of gifts. But I want you to notice, first and foremost, he doesn't give us a list just to give us a list. That same pattern of unity and diversity maintains. So look at verse 8. To one is given through the Spirit utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. What's the emphasis here? It's in the structure and not in the objects along the list, okay? He's pointing out here that there's a variety, and so he's going to show us that variety, but it's all rooted in the same God, and it's diverse in its expression to one but to the other, okay? Nonetheless, he gives us a list, and we're going to look at it this morning, but we need to understand here and now that this is not a complete list, okay? In fact, Paul adds to the list later in the chapter when he reviews it. Look at the end of chapter 12 and look at verse 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, thirds teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Okay, helping and administrating, he doesn't reference in this first section. If you go to Romans chapter 12, he's going to make a completely different list of gifts. Some overlap, some things completely missing. If you look at Ephesians, he's going to talk about some that we just read there in verse 28, apostles, prophets, evangelists, but he's also going to add pastors and teachers. If you flip back to 1 Corinthians 7, he's going to say that one of the gifts that God gives us is marriage and or singleness. And so this is a lot broader than any given list here. 
Like I said, Peter just says there's two types, gifts of service and gifts of word, and they demonstrate the manifold grace of God. And so it's worthwhile to familiarize yourself with all the lists. And once again, it's, they're very simple to find. Just think 12, 12, 4, 4. Okay? Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. You'll find where these lists are. But it's clear here that Paul is being relatively ad hoc. In fact, if you ask yourself, why does he organize the list the way he does? Why do these gifts fall in this order? There's a ton of ideas on this, and none of them have taken hold scholastically. No, none of it has become a universal understanding of all the scholars or even taken a majority opinion. It's pretty clear here that what he's doing doesn't have really solid organization, except he does put tongues at the end, and that's probably on purpose. And we'll see as we go in the chapters forward, he'll continue to put that in the same spot. Kind of like how every time we find a list of the 12 apostles, the list changes, but Judas is always at the end. Okay. So, Let's look at what these are. So verse 8, for the one is given through the spirit the utterance of wisdom and another the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit. So the first two are both utterances of, the Greek word there is logos, it means a word of, a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. Now, trying to specify and define each gift is, is not necessarily helpful because like I said, the list isn't complete. That's just us getting back to our categorical sense. But most likely what he's talking about here with a word of wisdom is that sometimes God divinely gives somebody insight to practically how we move forward, right? Maybe you've experienced this while you were, um, while you were looking for counsel within the church or while you were trying to navigate a, a, an especially difficult issue and then somebody just speaks up and it all falls into place and you go, that's it. That's what we were looking for. That's what we wanted. The second one he mentions here is a word of knowledge. The idea with a word of knowledge is that somebody knows something that they didn't learn. Okay? The idea with a word of knowledge is that situation where you just have insight into the situation that you didn't see. And so you speak authoritatively on what's happened. They know what's happened. You shouldn't know what's happened. You know what's happened. And so the idea here is a divinely given understanding. He continues on, verse 9, to another faith by the same spirit. Now, faith is a very broad word in Christianity, right? There is no being a Christian without faith. Hebrews says without faith, it's impossible to please God. So he's not saying here that some Christians have faith and some don't. All Christians have faith. But what he's talking to here is probably like when Jesus spoke of the faith to move mountains, Right? If you have the faith to move mountains, you can say to that mountain, be moved, and it will be moved. The idea here is of a supernatural confidence that God is going to do something specific. Okay. Um, to another, gifts of healing by the one spirit. To another, the working of miracles. Okay. These gifts I wanted to handle together, not just because they're so demonstrative, healings and miracles, but also because they're the only two on the list. They're the only two in the entire New Testament that always maintain a plural. Gifts of healings, workings of miracles, okay? And so most likely the reason why that little s is added to both of those words is because what we have here is not an ongoing and continuous gift like there are healers, but that God just shows up and sometimes heals, 
Okay, there must be a reason why these are specialized. The same with miracles. It's not that God christens some in the church as miracle workers. It's that one of the gifts he gives is a miracle. And he gives one here and he gives one there. That seems to be what is being pointed to here. Okay. Um, but nonetheless here, what it's clearly talking about is actual healing. This is something we can't get around in our, in our modern um, in our modern application of what's now an ancient religion, that in the New Testament, throughout Jesus' ministry and in the following of his apostles, people were miraculously healed. The blind saw, the lame walked, lepers found cleansing and total healing, uh, that even the dead were raised. And Jesus lays out in his ministry that that is going to continue in the church. And so that doesn't mean that God always heals. Even in Paul's own life, he begged and prayed that God would take away what he called a thorn in the flesh. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. He told Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach so you're not so irritated. He leaves, Trimo- uh, uh, he leaves Epaphroditus behind because he's sick. To the point, Paul says in Ephesians, to almost to death. And so it's not that God always heals everyone or that somebody has the divine touch of some sort of miraculous healing but on the other side it's also not that this can be explained away or forgotten or as the remnant of some ancient belief system that should be abandoned we believe that God is healer we believe that by the stripes of Jesus Christ Isaiah 53 we are healed and that that healing sometimes means divine and miraculous intervention and so we should expect that we should pray for that I find the words of Francis Schaeffer to be very helpful because Jesus has come we should expect substantial healing because Jesus has not returned we shouldn't expect complete healing I think that's a perfect balance for the issue and it's the same with the working of miracles now I think we would see a miraculous healing as being on this list but what it actually says here is the working of power that's the word it's translated for us here as miracles but it's the Greek word dunamis and so When we look at the New Testament for examples of this, this would probably involve exorcism. It would probably involve these occasions where big and crazy things happen that are not inherently healing-oriented. But what we're talking about, simply put, is the miraculous here. Continues on, and he says, um, to another prophecy. Now, prophecy is another term that very easily becomes a junk door term, so I want to deal with this right up front. There are those who reduce this word down to what I'm doing now. Prophecy is just explaining what the Bible means. Okay? Now, the New Testament is clear. Teaching and uh, evangelism and pastoring are all spiritual gifts. So I'm not trying to take teaching and say that there's not a supernatural element of it. I'm trying to say that prophecy is something specific. When you look at how prophecy is used descriptively in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it involves something revelatory, okay? It involves, uh, it involves speaking for God what wouldn't be known unless it was spoken. It involves not just saying something or explaining something, but being sent to say something. And we find prophets in the New Testament doing some things like Agabus the prophet and proclaiming that there's going to be a famine, Right? And that the church needs to prepare for it. Even, even there, though, it's more than that. It's not merely foretelling. Prophecy is not synonymous, synonymous with prediction. Okay? 
If you look at most of the prophets' ministries in the Old Testament, it has that element of prediction, but it has a lot more. It's speaking revelatorily and authoritatively for God. And let me add to that, that as we go through 1 Corinthians, we'll discover that those prophecies should be tested. Okay, that labeling yourself a prophet or feeling like you have a prophecy, being thoroughly convinced in your own mind is not grounds for authority. Okay, that the prophets, as Paul says later in this letter, need to be tested, that they need to be filtered through the revelation of scripture. But nonetheless, this gift that's talked about here is revelatory. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. In some Bibles, this says discernment, but it is specific here, discerning of spirits. And the, the recognition here is just a gift to see the unseen, to understand what's really going on behind the scenes, to see the spiritual realm that Paul is usually talking about and be able to make clear what's actually going on. When we're talking about testing prophecy later on, that probably involves this concept. Um, to another, various kinds of tongues. Now, the gift of tongues is a controversial one for a lot of reasons, at its base, as I mentioned earlier, the idea here is that you speak in a language you do not understand. And we see both a private version of that in prayer life that's viable for Christians, a way to worship. Maybe it's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8 when he talks about the spirit when we do not know how to pray, speaking in utterances too deep to be understood. It's possible. But nonetheless, here in this letter, Paul's going to say, speak in tongues in your personal prayer closet privately all you want. And there's an encouragement there. He says, your heart will be edified even though your brain doesn't understand. But he says, when we gather publicly, there needs to not just be this, but also the interpretation in tongues. Okay? Now, we're really just opening up the issues this morning. There's a lot of questions that come with that. We'll get there. You'll have to come back. I'm sorry. Um, but, but nonetheless, this gift is listed. And then finally to another, the interpretation of tongues, which after you understand what tongues is, I think is pretty evident. Verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And so once again, we get a summary statement and he says the same things and he adds one more nuance. He says, all these come from the self-same spirit, right? All of these different things are what God is doing. And let me read forward and say that includes helps and administration. We would see many of these things as inherently supernatural and a big deal. Paul says helps is included here. In Romans, he says leadership is included here. In Romans, he says service is included here as well as the gift of mercy. But whatever the variety is, all of it is supernatural. All of it stems from the spirit. And then he says to apportions to each one individually as he wills. And so once again, what the Spirit is doing is available to all of us, but it says here, as he wills. In other words, God is the distributor. It's not like shopping and we go in the store and we go, I'd like this gift and this gift and this gift, please. Paul will go on later in the letter to say that we should earnestly desire the best gifts. So just because all gifts are spiritual doesn't mean that they're all equal in their value to the church. And we should desire the valuable ones, but at the end of the day... God is the sovereign giver. He's the one who gives. And this is important because a lot of times we find other gifts valuable that God hasn't given us. And we feel a little bit like Samwise Gamgee being handed a piece of elven rope and going, do you have any more of those knives? Right? We, we resonate with, with this reality. But behind this whole concept is a God who's not merely sovereign, 
but like we talked about in our catechism, a God who is good. That apportions not arbitrarily, and definitely clearly here, not because some are better than others or more deserving than others or will use it in a greater way, but just lovingly that this is the best for you, it's the best for the church. Now, I grew up in a church, and it was a Baptist church, which means I had never read this passage before. Um, Baptist churches uh, tend to really lean heavily on the Bible and the exposition of the Bible and be a little bit wary of spirituality and these types of things. And so ironically, it leads to the weird place where they ignore parts of the Bible. In the same way, the Pentecostal church can swing the other way and be really influenced by and into the fact that the Spirit is alive and working in the church, but ignore the same passages that talk about that that should be done decently and in order. Ignore the Spirit's um, existence in the scriptures itself and how the Spirit speaks through those. Um, But nonetheless, so I grew up in that type of a church. I got saved um, when I was a senior in high school and I started attending a Calvary chapel. I'd probably heard this uh, passage taught, but I hadn't really thought about it. And then something very interesting happened. I went on a junior high retreat. I was an intern. And the retreat had what I now know as a common staple of junior high retreats in churches like ours, what's called an afterglow, okay, which is just a time to wait on the Spirit, to hear from God, to receive the gifts so that the gifts might be in operation. And what I'm telling you is I was a leader at this event and had never attended one or seen one. Uh, And so I didn't really know what to do. And there were these kids, many of them, um, you know, on their knees and praying and these types of things. On top of that, I had been an intern for maybe two weeks. So I didn't know any of the kids in the room. And I found myself just trying to figure out what to do. So I just started praying, Lord, I pray for this kid. And I pray for that kid and that kid over there. That was the best I could do. And I got to this particular kid and just, just sharp as an arrow, I heard in my brain, that kid has the gift of leadership and you should tell him. And I was like, nah, that's dumb. I don't know where that came from, but I'm not doing that. And I wrestled with it, and I I thought about it, and I I didn't know what to do with it. And eventually I said, okay, here's how this is going to work. Here's how this is going to work. I'm going to go, and I'm going to ask him bluntly a question, that if he feels like God is calling him to something specific. And if he says no, I'm just going to say, have a nice day and walk away. And so I set this up. Once again, I'm not familiar with these gifts. I don't know how these things work. Uh, And I I walk up and I just say, do you feel like God is calling you to something specific? And he goes sheet white and just gives me a big jaw-dropped nod. And so I explain to him this and then I go on to say, look, the only way you're ever going to be successful as a leader is you have to be a good follower. So really just press into, and it was this really sweet, intimate time. And then I prayed for him. These realities... um, are, are something that we may not even observe when they happen. He doesn't know how that was for me. He just knows how it was for him, and what he knows is that God spoke to him that day. And that's, for the most part, how these, uh, how these gifts work. There was another occasion where a family in our church was going through something really rough, something that made me feel completely inadequate to even be of service of them as they were watching their five-month-old die in the hospital. And I just would sit there with them and feel like I was worthless because there was nothing I could bring to the table. I'd find in my brain distractions, and I'd realize instantly that they didn't have the ability to be distracted from what was going on. And I felt all of this conviction, all these things going on. 
And after it was all over, I was talking with them about a month later after they buried their little boy. And they said, you know, it was, it was a time for where we were constantly asking where God was, where Jesus was in our life. And they said, but, but we felt the presence of Jesus in the presence of the church. And so, once again, a, an earmark of this gift is, is that God is working through it and making himself known, making himself manifest, as Paul says here. And I just want to simply say this morning, we need that, okay? That what God has promised the church in its inheritance, in the work of the Spirit, is good and big, and we need it, okay? And so, as we work through this and as we look at this, this, uh, look at this passage over the course of this week, Recognize that God has sovereignly and graciously gifted you, that he desires to work in and through your life, and that you have to watch out, on the other hand, for these other things, of thinking that some gift that seems to you to be really fantastic is a manifestation that they're better than you or more loved by God or these types of things, um, of taking what God has given us and using it to build our own kingdom instead of his, um, we have to watch out for these things, but God does not want us to be ignorant of the fact that his spirit is still alive, that he still works, that miracles are still a viable option in the Christian life as his healings, that God still speaks to his people through prophecy, that God has equipped us for every good work, not just as individuals, but as the body of Christ. And so at the end of this passage, he's going to say, earnestly desire the best gifts. That's all I want this morning is just the desire that the Spirit would continue to work. Let's pray. I think for many of us, Lord, we're, we're aware of all of the things that we can naturally fall short of in the Christian life if we don't lean on you if we don't depend on you, if we seek to do what you told us you would do in us. And if, this is, if these are the gifts, Lord, then we want to sit and wait and receive. If these are the manifestations of your spirit, then make yourself known to this church. If this is what service looks like, Lord, that you don't just call us as merely human beings, to serve you, but as spirit-empowered human beings to be at your service, then this is, this is what we want to do, Lord. We know that we began in the spirit. We know that we began in grace. Let us not be perfected by self-effort. Let us not be perfected uh, in the flesh. God, work in this church. Make yourself known to us and through us. I pray, Lord, that the full gamut of the expression of the gifts of the Spirit would be manifest in our church, that you would help us not to be ignorant of the gifts that you've given us, that we would press into the things that we don't understand, knowing that you're the one who can lead us through the darkness, and that you're good and that you're faithful. Help us to be a church that leaves room for experimentation here, knowing that, that there is a sovereign God and a powerful spirit, and there's also fallible human beings. And help us to be the type of community that can encourage one another in the gifts, that can lay our finger on the things that God is constantly doing through our lives and say, you know what, I think this is what God has for you. We thank you for all of that this morning. 
And we ask that you would just fill us with your spirit afresh this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.